Holy One, the scripture says that when the apostles were gathered together in one place, they were all of, all of one heart and mind, and a great grace was upon them. We pray through these human words, these poor words, that your great grace might be upon us all. One that brings life where there is death. Amen. So this week's our third and final installment of our sermon series, God and Money. I could already hear many of you sigh giving out a deep sigh of relief, money again. Ah. Or perhaps some of you aren't here today because this is the third and final installment of our sermon series of God and Money. We are very forgiving in this place, however, though. But the series is about the relationship between the way we use money or misuse money and our spiritual lives. The first week, we heard that wealth, like everything else in life, is a gift from God who is the source of everything. I don't mean that God chooses particular people to give those gifts, but I mean that everything flows from the source of life, who is God. Giving isn't always an act of gratitude for the life of, that the Creator has given us. In the second week, last week, we heard that money is seductive. It has a spiritual magnetism to it, an almost religious draw, one that draws us away from the things that matter most in life and draws us away from God. And so there's something of both in this week's reading when it comes to wealth. There's both a sense of gratitude, a sense of generosity, but also a sense of danger. There's a shadow side to life even when it comes to giving. We thought that it was all good. Just give, give, give. Excellent. Wonderful. And I mean, this past, our passage this morning begins with a good snapshot of gratitude. Now begins this morning's passage. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. The book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, traces Jesus' followers in the time following his resurrection and his ascension to take his place at the right hand of God. And this morning's passage gives us a snapshot of the community life of the early church. This is a generous community sharing everything they have. It's generosity for sure, but it's a different kind of generosity. A generosity that comes from somewhere else other than deep in the human heart. With great power, it says, with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So their self-giving and self-sacrifice is motivated and empowered by the experience and presence of Christ. There's an electricity a spiritual energy that Jesus' followers are experiencing together. Not only a powerful presence, but the reading tells us this presence is the same one that raised Jesus from the dead. 
And because of it, this power, our passage says, people are being roused to acts of charity, driven to deeds of supernatural selflessness. And this is evidence for the presence and power of God, the work of the risen Christ. So the proof is in the pocketbook, you could say. The giving is good. Everything is going so well. Maybe not, though. Because even in this generous community, we come to the part about the danger that I pointed out earlier, the shadow side. We have examples of two lives shaped by this community of gratitude. One's a good example, and the other's a bad example. Barnabas, it says, what a great name. Maybe that's going to be on our list for when our baby comes later this year. Barnabas. Abraham, Walter, and Barnabas. Anyway. Barnabas is a Levite. It says he's a Jewish priest. Priests aren't supposed to own land, but Barnabas does. But here it says he sells his land and adds it to the communal pot like the rest of the people gathered. The great grace that was upon them all has found its way into Barnabas's heart, and it softened it. His generosity is a sign of new life and redemption. He's the good example. Example number one, a life shaped by generosity. A life transformed by the presence of Christ in the community of faith. On the other hand, we have... Ananias, he claims to have done exactly as Barnabas did. He maintains he's sold a property, and he maintains that he's given all the proceeds for redistribution to those, redistribution to those in need. He said that's what he did, but he didn't actually do it. He projected an image of selflessness, but here he keeps a chunk of the proceeds from the sale for himself. But the worst part is, he lied about it. And in hearing his deception, Peter, the leader of Jesus' followers, confronts him with the truth. Peter calls out the lie to Ananias' face in front of everybody. I mean, that would be an awkward coffee hour afterwards, I think. And something unexpected happens. The words hit his ears, and the text says, the story says he just drops dead. And then some people carry him off and bury him right then and there. I mean, that would be a strange day to experience if you're one of the people just, oh, okay, there's no questions asked. This guy is just dead, and they carry him off, and life goes on. When he hears the truth, Ananias just dies right there. Same thing happens with his wife. By the way, Sapphira arrives on the scene. Peter confronts her about the land, too, but she plays dumb. He asks her how much cash they got for that land, and unfortunately, Sapphira opts to water the lie that Ananias planted rather than pluck it up by admitting the deception. 
she keeps up the ruse. So she too drops dead, just like her husband did. And just like her husband, she's also carried away and buried then and there. Okay, so this sounds like a bit of a challenging story thus far. It sounds like God or Jesus' followers, the apostles, have punished Ananias and Sapphira. Sometimes I actually wish I had the power to do stuff like that. But it doesn't say that here. It doesn't say that the apostles or God did this. We're only told that it's when their deceit was exposed that they fall down dead. Because the issue here isn't their greed. They might have been greedy. We don't actually know. The text doesn't you know, go into the psychology of their motivations at all. The text doesn't try to psychologize or psychoanalyze them. And the issue here isn't even that they kept back some of their money from the community. It even says, Peter even says, you know, if you didn't sell the land, you could have just used it as you pleased. But you chose to sell it and then lie about how much you gave to the community. The problem is here is that they lied about it. The image of generosity that they projected was more important than the act of generosity itself. Where for Barnabas, giving was an act of gratitude, one that pointed to a changed life. For Ananias and Sapphira, the act of giving was an act of ego, a point of pride, a way to look good in front of the community. They wanted other people to see how generous they were. And so rather than bringing them new like, like Barnabas, giving actually points them in the other direction. It's the lie that kills them more than anything else. It's the lie. Where in most cases giving your money and your stuff away can be a life-giving discipline, here we see the shadow side. It's exactly the opposite. It's life-sucking. Because here generosity is just for appearances. It's for power. There's a danger in giving, too. I mean, I wouldn't want to ever want to discourage anybody from giving to the church or anywhere else. I'm talking about giving in general. A danger when it's not done for the right reasons, for the right motivations. And it isn't just in the realm of money. How often do we see politicians appearing at soup kitchens conveniently with cameras in tow? Or at disaster zones, too. That's another place where politicians show up for photo ops. How often do we see giant checks handed out by wealthy individuals or corporations? Or the names of donors and companies splayed across public buildings because it makes good PR. I don't know about you, but something I find myself just casually inserting into conversations is just about how, I, how kind I was to someone that day. Of course, I try to frame it in a way that we sort of gradually get to it, where people discover how, uh, how generous I am. 
or about how I went above and beyond to help somebody that day, whether it was with my time or my money. The generosity itself isn't often enough for me. I want everyone to know just how benevolent I am. How generous I am. But this way of giving, according to this passage, points me not in God's direction towards new life, the direction of the path that Barnabas trod, but in the direction of Ananias and Sapphia, not towards resurrection, not towards newness of life in Christ, but away from life and towards spiritual death. There's a danger in giving. Like everything else good in our lives, it can become twisted. It can become corrupted. The temptation for us in giving is so that others know just how generous we are. This appearance of generosity And this, says today's passage, this can be even worse than greed. It can be even worse than stinginess. The problem with giving, then, lies in our motivations. The purpose of our giving. So then, I guess, the solution to that is having the right intentions having the right motivations. My first temptation is to just tell people to give for giving's sake, but that's not really a thing. Just to give. But that's not quite it. If we go back to our big good example, Barnabas, though we're given the clues to what right motivations are. Remember how it says at the beginning of this text that the community of faith is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus? And their life together is evidence of a great grace that was upon them. You'll recognize this test word testimony as courtroom language. You call someone, you call a witness to the stand to offer evidence in a trial. Often Christians think of testimony in this way as verbal exclusively, that we share our faith by speaking. But if you remember Johnny Cochran at the O.J. Simpson trial, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Other kinds of evidence, like physical evidence, can we be just as powerful as verbal testimony, sometimes more so. So their generosity is evidence of a gracious, loving, giving God at the heart of the universe, one who has touched down in Jesus. Barnabas, in his generosity, is evidence. His life and giving are a walking, talking, breathing testimony to God's own generosity. God's own presence, God's own power to change lives. Barnabas gives because he's been transformed. It's gratitude. But it's also his example. His name even means son of encouragement or the encourager. Because in Barnabas, we see extraordinary generosity, one that provides encouragement to other people. His life, his giving, is a testimony because it points beyond himself and points
points others to the new life that Christ brings. I have known many Barnabases. Barnabai. Barnabases. Barnabies? People in my short time in, my, in ministry, my short time in communities of faith, people whose generosity wasn't an ego trip, but pointed to the great grace of God and new life in Christ. One example, of course, that many of us know, not all of us do, is Wayne Metric, who was our church custodian. People didn't think he had much. And I've heard that sometimes Wayne's cleaning was not the best, but people thought, well, Wayne needs his job. We couldn't possibly let him go. And then when Wayne died, eventually, he left the church $600,000. That is testimony to God's great grace in Christ. We didn't even know he had that money. (laughs) His giving was a way to point in the direction of the God who gave him all good gifts. And even some of you here today, I won't point you out because then maybe you'll start getting an ego trip, getting on an ego trip. But people who aren't necessarily extraordinary, famous, or powerful, but ordinary people, people who through their generosity have been examples, icons, witnesses of God's generosity and God's power. And I know in seeing it, being on the receiving end of it, I too have been encouraged by your witness. My own heart has been opened in order to be shaped into the image of Christ's own heart, and there are countless others who have experienced the same. True generosity, we discover, not only transforms us, opens our hearts, but it opens others through our witness. So this week, ask yourself, where do my intentions lie? Is my life pointing towards Barnabas? Towards new life in Christ? Or is my life pointing towards Ananias and Sapphira? towards the opposite of new life in Christ. Because the right motivation in generosity is to offer witness for our lives to a living, breathing testimony to the risen Christ. True generosity is not found in hoping to be seen, but so other people are able to see God at work in and through us to catch a glimpse of Christ so they too might be transformed. And for this, thanks be to God. Amen.
stand for a breathe on me breath of God. Please remain standing as we recite the words of the ancient Apostles' Creed together, uh, the fourth century uh, affirmation of faith that reminds us of who we are and to whom we belong. Let's recite it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again. He is seated in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will, will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. You can find the News of Our Life together in your bulletin. Uh, if I can find it.